Hurry Slowly is an ad-free, listener-supported podcast, and I rely on your contributions to continue to do this work. If you value the ideas offered by this podcast, you can make a one-time or ongoing donation at hurryslowly.co slash donations. Anything that you can offer is deeply appreciated. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly. Today, I'm in conversation with Sherry Mitchell. It doesn't matter if you're working a deli counter or if you're addressing thousands of people from some elevated stage. If you are just yourself, then your purpose has been met. Because this is not uh, this is not a numeric equation. It's not an, an economic equation. This is a vibrational equation. And the vibrational fullness that you bring to the world when you're fully being yourself is the true gift. And so our job is to connect with that, align with that, bring ourselves forward. Sherry Mitchell is a member of the Penobscot tribe, an Indigenous rights attorney and activist, and the author of Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change. She speaks and teaches around the world on issues of Indigenous rights, environmental justice, and spiritual change. She is also the executive director of the Land Peace Foundation, an organization dedicated to the global protection of Indigenous land and water rights and the preservation of the Indigenous way of life. Over the past 30 years, Sherry has worked with Indigenous spiritual leaders from across the Americas in many capacities helping to ensure that their voices are heard within the larger society. This has included bringing their messages to political leaders in the U.S. and Canada and the Indigenous Peoples Forum at the United Nations. Sherry is also the visionary behind Healing the Wounds of Turtle Island, a global healing ceremony that has brought people together from all corners of the world. The ceremony is designed to heal our relationships with one another as human beings, and then to heal the relationship with human beings and the rest of creation. It began in 2017 and will continue for 21 years as it moves through four cycles and travels to all four corners of the United States. I was deeply affected by reading Sherry's book, Sacred Instructions, last year, and I was absolutely thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to her about how we can break free from the delusion of separation, access our inner gifts, and learn how to be of service and step into spiritual maturity. I should note that this call was originally recorded on Zoom in front of a live audience on March 2nd, 2022. We had a lot of technical difficulties, which resulted in some audio inconsistencies that you might notice. Early on, there's some funky background noise that magically disappeared after we got disconnected and then reconnected in the middle of the interview. But as Sherry said during the call, this is going to be impactful because there's been a lot of energy invested in trying to keep us from going forward today. And she was so right. Even though the sound isn't perfect, this is one of my favorite interviews that I've ever shared on Hurry Slowly. It seems fitting then that it will also be the last interview of season four of this podcast, after which I'm taking a much needed break to reflect on the future of this project and my work in general. As I learn what's next for me, I'll be sure to keep you posted. All right, that's enough context. Let's get started. Sherry Mitchell, welcome to Hurry Slowly. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. It's wonderful to be here with you. 
just want to uh, take a moment to um, acknowledge my ancestors, where I come from. So I'll say to everyone, uh, Kwee Pusidawin, hello everyone. Ndalawisi wanahamu kwasit and ajiru banawapskewi. Ndalabama kawasus no banawapskewi nagakakakus noktibayik. My family is Bear Clan from the Penobscot Nation and uh, Crow Clan from the Passamaquoddy tribe of Tibayak. And I like to acknowledge them when I begin anything to, uh, to recognize my own origins at the beginning of things. And so uh, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much. To Orient listeners who have not yet encountered your work, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about your path through this world. What led you into activism and environmental justice work and how that flowed into becoming a spiritual teacher. I'm curious how you would describe the through line of your journey. Interesting question. It's always hard to uh, define our paths. I don't think I'd ever define myself as a spiritual teacher. I'm just uh, somebody who is living a life that is uh, open to those who are willing to uh, share the stories of our shared journey. And so I, I was fortunate enough to be born into a very strong family who was deeply connected to our own ways of being and knowing as Skijinawak peoples, as indigenous peoples. And um, also to have this incredible experience of deep community and incredible racism all existing in the same the same space so our our reservation is a an island and we're separated from the mainland by a bridge and when i was growing up it was a a single lane bridge for a long time until i was probably 19 maybe even 20 when the when the bridge changed to a two-lane bridge and um there were two things that I could do when I was a child growing up that would get me in, in very serious trouble with my grandfather. And that was to cross that bridge and to go into the river because you know, the, the water was quite polluted and the, uh, the current was strong. The rapids were strong where we lived and uh, across the bridge, there was a lot of unpredictable racism. And so those were the two things that I could do that my grandfather could not keep me safe if I did those things, that's what he explained to me. And so um, the punishment for those things was quite strong. And so growing up in that environment with this deep sense of community on one side of the bridge where everyone looked out for one another, um, we really took care of one another. Um, most of my childhood was spent doing something with one of my grandparents or the other, uh, helping somebody in our community whether it was secretly delivering clothes or food onto somebody's doorstep before the sun came up or helping my grandfather repair the steps of an elder in the community. Uh, we really lived in a, in a way that was um, in service to one another. And um, I had this strong sense of community and charity that was uh, a gift that was given to me by my grandparents and, and my family. But you know, on the flip side of that, there was also this extreme racism where there were three people that I personally knew in my life who were um, impacted by, by extreme violence as a result of racism. Uh, one of our tribal members when I was about seven years old was shot in the back by the police for just walking home. 
uh, and and killed. And um, a group of young men from our community was in a ceremony in a, a ceremonial space that's uh, nearby where we where we live within our territory, and they um, were beaten severely by a group of men wearing white hoods uh, and ended up in the hospital. And then my uh, John Bear, my, my brother, he, he and I used to get into all kinds of mischief together. We were peas and carrots growing up wherever one was, the other was. And um, so he wanted to cross the bridge one time and on our bikes, we had these little, you know, the little huffy bikes, he had the banana seat and I had the big pink cushy seat. We were awful proud of those bikes. And um, so he wanted to cross the bridge and uh, <clears throat> and I I was all for it until I remembered that that carnival was gonna be coming to the neighboring town in the next weekend. And I wanted to go really bad. And I said, well, if we do that, I said, we're not gonna be able to go to the carnival. And so why don't we wait until after the carnival and then we'll cross the bridge on our bikes. And he said, no way I'm going right now. He said, stay here. Cause it was, it was literally a mile there and back. Uh, you know, which is not very far on a bike. And so I, you know, I waited for him and he was gone probably 10 or 15 minutes. And I, I stayed at the bottom of the driveway. He lived up on this hill and I stayed at the bottom of the driveway while he went and uh, I could see him coming back and he had on these tan pants and I noticed down the hole inside of one leg, it was covered in blood. And I started hollering for our, um, for you know the parents and the grandparents to come, and they uh, you know ripped his pants down, and he had been he had his shoe had come untied. When he got to the other side of the bridge, he bent over to tie his shoe, and just as he was lifting his head, somebody shot him with a rifle with birdshot, and he had all the pellets from that birdshot in his inner thigh, um, and he was probably ten years old at the time. And so whoever had shot him had been aiming for his head when he was bent over tying his shoe. And so we were, you know, we were raised with that reality. And then when we got to be in seventh grade, all of a sudden we had to go to school across the bridge. Uh, and so we had this, you know, this terrifying reality of the dangers that existed beyond that bridge. And then uh, we were thrust into an environment where we had to be there. And uh, managing all of those different realities um, and having to develop, you know, the type of resilience and fortitude that's required to manage what's un seemingly unmanageable for a child uh, really formed the character of who I was. And also, um, you know, we were in the process when I was growing up of going through the land claim settlement for my, for my nation. And so all of that was very politically active and the American Indian Religious Freedom Act was, was passed when I was a child. <clears throat> Prior to that, it was illegal for us to do our ceremonies or to speak our language publicly. And so there was this really strong time of, of political and ceremonial um, cultural power that was present in the air while I was being raised up in one of my um, one of my friends from childhood, who is the director of the cultural and the historic preservation office for our tribe, we were talking one time and he said there was really something in the water when we were growing up because one of our friends is chief, the other one runs a native studies program, you know, uh, he runs a historic preservation office and 
uh, all of the people from that generation all have these strong roles within our community. And um, that environment really provided us with something that I think was very rare and um, helped to form the character of who we all became and the commitment that we felt toward, toward our own people. Mm, thank you for sharing that. I want to pause, Sherry, to ask you a technical question. I'm hearing some sort of like skittering or something happening in the background. Is there anything like scratching on a desk or anything happening there that could be? So I am at a place called Wajukum Toltina, which is a 200 acre farm that um, on our traditional territory that we reclaimed. 200 years from the date that it was taken from our people and given away in a land grant. Mm. Uh, there is major construction going on in the barn behind these windows. Mm. Um, there is construction going on on the first floor and the other side of the building that I'm in right now. Yeah. Uh, so it's very possible that there's a lot of skittering going on. <laughs> All right. We'll do the best we can, but there's also a, a small heater up here that turns on periodically that you might yeah. be hearing in the background as well. All right. Thank you so much for the context. I'd like to move right into talking about this very difficult time that we're all navigating. In your book, Sacred Instructions, you write that we are on the precipice of an evolutionary leap, one that requires us to transcend our differences and integrate into a more harmonized way of being. And you describe humanity as being in the midst of a, a rebirth, where we are, quote, collectively being held in a moment of overwhelming pressure and chaotic movement, where everything within us wants to push through the pain and put an end to the ordeal. We are being held in this deeply uncomfortable place so that the divine process can unfold in perfect order, so that we can receive the inner wisdom that allows the final opening to occur end quote. Um, and I would say that given this language, anyone who didn't know that your book was published in 2018 would probably think that it came out after the pandemic began to unfold. I know that you've also since edited a book called The Corona Transmissions, which collects a series of meditations, uh, both physical and metaphysical, on COVID-19. And given everything that you learned from editing that book, I'm curious how you would situate the pandemic within this story of rebirth. Well, I think that it's, it's um, you know, it's perfectly part of this process of pain and letting go. That there's been this massive amount of letting go that's been required of us as a result of the pandemic. We've had to let go of the lives that we were living before to find a new uh, way of being in the world in relationship with one another in order to keep ourselves and our families and loved ones safe. We have uh, had to let go of um, notions of superiority that we had over the natural world and reposition ourselves uh, properly within our, our uh, place, balanced place within creation. At least we had to do that if we're paying attention. Um, and um, we've had to prepare ourselves for living in a new reality that uh, is going to be very different from the one that we had been living in before. And I think all of those things are also true about um, preparation for birth. So. If you've ever had a child or a new puppy, then you know 
that things change uh, once that new life joins with yours. And um, when I think about where we are in the midst of this pandemic, it just, it blows my mind to think about the wisdom of those who came before me. I remember having this, um, this story, my friend Jess Cree was telling the story and I was like, hey, I, I know that story. And um, we, were, uh, we were talking about the pandemic and, and, um, and Jess Cree is, a, is an, uh, an Obscott naturopath. And um, I remember hearing this story from my grandmother and my grandmother heard the story from her grandmother and her grandmother heard the story from her grandmother. And the story that, you know, survived through time, through the retelling um, the story of the first illness for our people tells a story of a time when human beings have wandered so far away from being in alignment with life that they have started to harm all other living beings. And we, um, you know, we've forgotten the language of the plants and the trees. We've forgotten the language of the animals, how to be in relationship with the rest of life. And um, because we are now causing harm because of our forgetfulness uh, and our wanderings away from the sources of our survival, uh, the animals go into council to, to decide what they're going to do about their young relatives, the human beings, because we're the youngest species on the planet. And so when we talk about the plants and the trees and we talk about the rocks, you know, that geological science that, um, you know, uh, that uh, eco-biological um, wisdom, and we talk about our, our elders, the animals. Um, what we're talking about is recognizing that they have lived here in this place far longer than we have, and that they carry stories within them and ways of adapting and being in the world that we can learn from. And so the animals go into council to decide what's to be done with, with us, the wayward children of the earth, and uh, they decide after much deliberation and a lot of pain because they really loved us. You know, they really helped us to adapt to being here and, and loved us and cared enough for us to help us to survive. And um, they decided that they had to give us illness to help us to understand uh, the harm that we were causing. And so the animals gave human beings illness and the, and the people got sick and they began to die. And and their uh, man-made medicine wasn't doing anything to help them to, to survive the illnesses that were coming. And so for a long time, this went on. And then the plants and the trees, they started to feel really sorry for the human beings. And they went into council together to decide, uh, how can we help um, these young relatives of ours without taking away the lesson the animals are trying to give them? And they decided that they would float a message out to the human beings to say, you know, if you renew your relationship with us, we'll teach you the medicines to heal your people. And so they floated this message out. And there was a grandmother that got that message in her dream. And when she woke up, she, she decided that she was going to go into the forest and she was going to try to renew her relationships with the plants and the trees to get this medicine for her people. And, and so she tells her people what she's doing when she, she goes because she remembers when she was a little girl, the elders used to talk about a time when the people used to live in relationship with the, the beings in the natural world. And so she, she goes there and she tries to, uh, you know, talk to them and she can't hear them. She can't understand what they're saying. And 
And so she starts to make offerings to them and she just sings to them and she tells them stories and she just keeps trying to communicate. And finally they see the, uh, the purity in her heart and they begin to speak to her. And uh, they begin to teach her again, how to be in relationship with them. And uh, eventually they teach her the medicines that will help her to heal her people and how to uh, respectfully and honorably work with those medicines, how to harvest them in a good way, prepare them, and how to dose her people with them. And so she goes back and she takes that knowledge and she heals her people. And then <clears throat> they share that information with the other people who are living uh, nearby. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, the the people that she comes from, they decide that they're going to go back and they're going to go move back uh, to the edge of the forest and they're going to live uh, once again in the old ways in relationship with the plants and the trees and the animals and the waters and the winds. Then they're going to um, realign themselves with the balance of life. And many of the others did not. And so the story goes that that's why our humanoid species of the many humanoid species that have existed through time. That's why our humanoid species survived is because we were the ones that went back. Um, and so when I hear that story about illness that came from animals because human beings had gotten out of alignment with life, I think this is a story of today. This is the story of this time. Uh, and this is what the bats are trying to tell us with COVID. Uh, these, you know, the winged ones, we had the bird flu, we have this now. You know, we had swine flu. We have all of these illnesses that have been coming to us that are trying to um, inform us that our way of being is out of alignment with life. And so uh, to me, what this pandemic is teaching us is how do we bring our lives back into alignment with the source of life, with the flow of life and start moving away from um, the path of destruction that we're currently on, where we have over a million species today that are on the verge of extinction, and human beings are one of them. And, um, you know, we, we still have this superiority complex where we think that we're above the rest of life, and uh, nothing could be further from the truth. And, and uh, you know, if we listen and we pay attention, we can, we can see that that message is being given to us. By, by the other beings within creation. Hmm. So as we think about coming back into alignment, I want to talk about it on a little bit of a personal individual level. One of the things that you write about in Sacred Instructions is the idea that none of us are here by accident. Um, and you write that we entered this world with the express purpose of facilitating the changes that are manifesting during this time. And we brought with us the gifts needed to accomplish that task. And that none of us are out of time or place, though that many of us may remain out of step with our true path. And I think, you know, many people feel this yearning to be on the path. And, and that's kind of even more... Um, maybe become stronger for many people during this difficult time. Um, they want to be able to access their gifts and to be of service, but they intuitively sense that they're maybe a little bit out of step with the path, as you say. I'm curious what you've observed over the years about how people come into alignment 
with their path in terms of really getting in touch with their, their inner gifts of how they can be of service. I, I like this question um, because I think that we're so often uh, living in illusion, you know, and I think that one of the things that we have to do um, first is to really just let go of the assumptions that we have about how those gifts are um, meant to manifest and be shared because we have these ideas of what that means and um, and those ideas have been shaped by the reality that we've been living in. And so um, I've had a number of people reach out to me uh, after reading the very first chapter of Sacred Instructions. You know, they don't even get beyond the first chapter and they, and they send me an email or, or try to reach out to me on, on social media and say, you know, they're so frustrated that they haven't been able to find a way to make a living sharing their gift. And, um, you know, because they, they believe that if this is really a gift, then they should be able to profit off of it, right? Uh, and so um, some of them have even shared this, this sense of grief and loss because they're, what they perceive to be their gift must not be their gift if they can't profit off of it. And so, um, you know, even when it's something that just really makes their soul sing, um, you know, that lights them up inside. And so then they, then they ask me, you know, well, how do we, how do we do this? You know, how do we find what our gift really is? And, and how do we bring these two disparate things together, right? The sharing of our gift and the making of money. Um, and they've monetized the gift, they've monetized their lives. And so when you, you know, when you do that, when you, when you monetize your life, uh, you, create this distortion in the dream. And so um, if we really want to be able to align ourselves with our gifts, we have to strip away that illusion to connect with our inner truth. We have to um, be guided by that truth toward our most authentic expression of ourselves. And, um, and then when we do that, we realize that that's the true gift, right? That, um, that the the being of ourselves is the true gift and sadly we've been conditioned to commodify all aspects of our being um, breaking ourselves down into these fragmented saleable parts that we uh, offer to all of those that we come in contact with we we sell ourselves in a certain way to our parents and our grandparents we sell ourselves in a certain way to our friends right we sell ourselves in a certain way uh, within whatever faith communities that we're in. We sell ourselves in a certain way to our employers or potential partners. Um, and, uh, you know, never daring to bring our full selves forward. Uh, always being afraid that if we, if we were really ourselves, right, then uh, we would be rejected. And in doing so, we deny ourselves the right to ever be loved. And, you know, we also deny ourselves um, from from fully sharing the gift that we have that we've come uh, we've come here to bring, and so um, if we really want to align ourselves with our gifts, we have to stop basing our value on economic terms, especially the distorted economic terms of capitalism, which is soul crushing. Um, we have to begin to uh, recognize that the true value of of our um, of our being is found in being able to embrace and express the fullness of who we truly are. And so I once had a spiritual teacher tell me that um, 
that my only purpose in life was to be myself. And, um, you know, what a disappointing thing to hear, right? When you think that you have, uh, you know, everybody's got a purpose that leads them to some kind of greatness, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we can't, uh, we can't uh, imagine that just being ourselves is the fulfillment of some great meaning, right? Um, and, and so this, this teacher told me that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're working a deli counter, or if you're addressing thousands of people from some elevated stage, if you are just yourself, then your purpose has been met. Because this is not uh, this is not a numeric equation. It's not an, an economic equation. This is a vibrational equation. And the vibrational fullness that you bring to the world when you're fully being yourself is the true gift. And so when we are able to really um, bring forward the fullness of our being, uh, to emerge as whole human beings with all of our stuff intact, um, accepted and integrated, that's that vibrational frequency that we bring to the world in that moment that helps to harmonize and balance the entire vibrational frequency of the planet is the gift. And so our job is to connect with that, align with that, bring ourselves forward. Um, and that truly is the gift that we're seeking. And we all have different ways of getting to achieve that vibrational harmony. And so we think that our, our, our boat that we take to get there is the gift, but really the gift is the arrival in that place of vibrational fullness. Mm. Could you share a little bit about how that experience of coming into alignment like felt for you personally? Well, I mean, it doesn't happen all at once, right? It happens mm -hmm. in degrees. And so when uh, I've had, I've had a million moments yeah. of that, that I still have moments of that. I remember um, I have, you know, I, I run a nonprofit organization called the Land Peace Foundation. Uh, we have fellowship program. We do a lot of climate change work. Uh, and we have a land-based learning community. And, you know, so I have staff and uh, a lot of volunteers. And I remember not too long ago, I was telling one of my, one of the young people that works for me, um, who was, you know, trying to find their way of delegating kindly. Um, <laughs> And I said, geez, I remember it wasn't very long ago. I said that I just realized I said I did I handled the situation in a way that I really felt good about. Like I felt like I really showed up for it. And, you know, I was really present in that moment and I was the person I most wanted to be. And I said, and it wasn't until then that I realized, hey, you know, I might be able to be a good boss. You know, and I'd already been being a boss for a long time. <laughs> so it's like this, this every moment that we show up in fullness is a moment of, of self-realization, self-actualization. It's never complete. You know, I've had profound moments that I talked about in the book of like really connecting with the rest of life and realizing my interconnectedness. Um, but I don't think that there's any one moment any more than there's a booming voice from the sky that's going to tell us what is, right? It's subtle. 
it's all of these subtle shifts and adjustments over time that are really harmonizing and tuning us um, to, to open because every time something moves, I've uh, been doing um, a lot of trauma work for, for myself, uh, another, another layer of trauma work for myself uh, during the pandemic because I've, I've had this beautiful opportunity to slow down. And so all of the stuff that, you know, has not been fully dealt with just comes and sits on the couch with you and cozies up, right? Uh, and every time something shifts, something else rises. Uh, every time we're able to move something or to be present with something that was too painful to face, there's a deepening of acceptance within our being for ourselves, right? Because we... We get taught by society that we need to cut off, we need to let go, we need to get rid of all of these things that um, have harmed us in the past without realizing that that amputation that we're being asked to, um, to be involved with is self-abusive. It's a lack of acceptance of a part of us that was formed through painful experience. And so, uh, you know, the, the whole purpose of this self-actualization emergence into wholeness is being able to be present with all of the aspects of our beings, even the ones that are wounded, even the ones that are not favorable, even the ones that uh, make you groan and cringe. You know, uh, there are things that we've all done in our lives that have made us groan or cringe, I'm sure. And if you haven't, then I suggest that you try harder. Um, you know, uh, because that's part of us figuring out who we want to be is knowing first who we're not and who we don't want to be, what's not in alignment. Um, you know, people look at that as a failure and I say, well, you're one step closer to, to knowing exactly what it is that you want to be. And so I, I don't think there's any one moment. I know what you're asking me to explain. I know the moment you're talking about. Uh, but I, I don't want people to get the wrong idea that there's this big uh, experience that we're all working toward because it really is individual, subtle moments of movement. You know, I think Oprah calls them aha moments and I call them eviction points. Uh, it might just be the lawyer in me, but, you know, <laughs> when you have that moment of awakening, you're completely evicted from the life you were living the moment before. You can never go back to being the person you were in the moment before you had that realization, you can never unknow what becomes known. And so, you know, we have those constantly all the time and we're adjusting and we're growing and we're shifting and we're, you know, reshaping ourselves um, in those, in those moments of awareness and uh, in those moments of, of what I one time wrote about of, um, you know, beauty wrapped in sorrow that there's something really profoundly beautiful when we reach these moments of deep sorrow because we begin to realize what's so precious about our lives in those moments of deep grief and sorrow. And so, you know, it's all a process of, of gradual and continual unfolding. Thank you for that. That that was actually the answer that I was hoping for. I think it's really useful to demystify this, you know, idea of some sort of grand received calling and shift and um, talk a little bit more about the sort of subtle mundane everyday. 
aspects of it. So I'm really glad that you shared that. Moving a little bit more into the idea of illusion that you were talking about, not just in an individual sense, but in a collective sense. I've heard you speak about how we can't make changes that will endure if we don't first transcend the illusion of separation. I'm curious if you could say more about your particular understanding of the illusion of separation and if you're willing, maybe share a personal example of, of kind of being challenged to transcend it. Goodness. Um, I think that one of the, one of the greatest challenges for us is undoing the conditioning of, um, you know, colonization, capitalism, and, um, this notion of, um, fragmentation that goes along with it because there's a real fragmentation and separation forced separation that results from all of those things that we could talk about for weeks uh, if we if we had the time and enough tea and so um you know the whole notion of separation for me is is this idea of othering Right, this this notion that uh, we are somehow um, separate from the other that we're seeing, and so when I think about that story that uh, in Genesis where they say that you know uh, Adam and Eve realized they were naked, I don't think that's the big problem. I think the big problem is is them be believing that they were something other than all of the other beings that were in that garden. And so when I walk, I used to tease some of my non-native friends when they'd come visit me on the res and we'd walk and through the woods on these paths and we'd be walking. I'd be like, you hear those birds? And they'd be like, yeah. I was like, look at those squirrels, how close they're coming to us. Listen to them. Can you hear that? their little noises? And they're like, oh, yeah. You know, we'll be walking along and pointing out all the noises of the forest. And then I'll stop and say, did you ever wonder why when you walk into the forest by yourself, everything goes quiet? And like, oh, I never thought about that. It's like, that's because we were never kicked out of the garden. Because we remember, you know, that, that we were the same as the rest of creation, right? And so, you know, that story that's really deeply embedded in my traditional way of knowing who I am in relation to life, uh, this way of life that we call Skijinawe the Mosawagan, it's, it's really about understanding that core philosophy of Vindelnabamuk, of, of being related to all life. Uh, and being inseparable from all life. And so that's that's imbued in all of our stories. And so one of the stories that we have that's not in sacred instructions, it's going to be in the follow-up to sacred instructions, um, is the story of Kachinuwesk and Echimundo. And in that story, um, Echimundo is lying in the form of an empty pool of matter, right? Uh, and uh, I... I, I love this story because it allows for a lot of a lot of um, speculation about about our engagement with life, right? How many of us have ever come upon uh, an empty pool of matter, right? Which is endless possibility and potential uh, that never gets realized. Um, and so, uh, Echimundo, the sacred masculine, was in the form of this pool of of matter. 
um, all of this unrealized potential at rest uh, because that, that masculine energy is the projective external outward energy that, that propels through life. Um, and Kachiniwesk, the sacred feminine, that internal, uh, intuitive, heart-based knowing uh, was wandering across space and time. She was walking through space and time. And she had a basket. She was collecting all of these um, hopes and dreams of all of those who had lived in all of the times before. And she was putting them in her basket. And by the time she got back, she had done the full loop and got back to where Ekjimundo was resting. She stood at the edge of that pool and her, her belly was round now. The basket had become a pregnant belly. Uh, and her belly was round with all of the hopes and the dreams, the visions of all of those who had come before. And she begins at first very, very slowly to uh, whisper all of those hopes and dreams across that pool. And the water begins to slightly ripple. And as she begins to increase her story uh, in pitch, the, the ripples become larger and the forms begin to rise up out of that pool of matter until she has spoken all of the hopes and dreams and visions of all those who have lived through all time uh, and all of the forms from all of those, all of those hopes and visions um, are standing before her in place of this pool of life. And then uh, Ekjimundo stretches, you know, from his sleep and circles that, um, that image that she's created of all life and creates a seed, a hard shell of a seed around it. And it, it sits between the two of them. And they link their arms together and they begin to sing this story of creation. They're breathing life into this uh, image that has been created through the interplay of her voice and her song and, and the matter that is Ekjimundo. And so they keep singing the song of creation until the song reaches a high enough vibration and frequency that it shatters the seed and all of that life is spread across the universe that we're currently inhabiting. And what that story teaches us is that we all come from the same seed of life, that we are all born from the same matter. And so when we think about that story and we think about the the spider woman and the web of life stories from indigenous traditions, which seem like, oh, aren't those cute little stories, right? That just talk about our connectivity. Uh, and it's not about if you eat all the corn over here, then I have no corn, right? It's more complex than that. Uh, it really is about quantum physics and quantum entanglement and understanding that we are all born of the same matter. And just as quantum entanglement tells us that any matter that's once connected physically can never be disconnected energetically, we also recognize that that's true spiritually. And so because we're all born of the same matter and we are entangled in this way, in this web of life, um, we still have uh, this um, sense of, of feeling within our bodies that we have numbed and that we've disconnected from through this illusion of separation um, to the sensations within the larger body of life. And so 
I liken that to uh, phantom limb syndrome. So if you think about somebody who has their leg amputated from the knee down, uh, they still get sensations in their foot, even though the physical foot is no longer there. The energetic and spiritual imprint of that foot is still connected to that body uh, where the matter was once connected physically. And so people, you know, so like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I can understand that concept, right? Uh, and then we can expand that concept to include all other life on the planet. And we look at the conditions of life that surround us and we start to recognize that uh, we are living at a time when there's a quickening and a thinning of this veil between all life, uh, between us and the other side. And we have been experiencing um, this phenomena where one in three, I think it's more than that. I think it's probably everyone at some point in time. Uh, one in three people is said to have some type of depression or anxiety, disorder. Um, and uh, people are waking up in the middle of the night with panic attacks. People are driving down the highway and bursting into tears in their car for no known reason. Uh, people are feeling this immense sense of loneliness, even when they're deeply connected to those that they love and that they really have a, a, a real connection with, and they can't understand it. And they can't explain it until they understand this concept of entanglement and web of life that is imbued in these stories. And so when we start to understand the depth of our interconnectedness, right? When we talk about Basilda and Dilma we're talking about being related in this way to all of our relatives uh, throughout the entire universe, all life. Um, we start to understand that when we're experiencing this immense grief that we have no uh, seeming cause for, what we're experiencing is the grief of the mother whale who carried her baby around for 17 days trying to show us what we were doing to their ecosystem. When we're overwhelmed with this incredible loneliness, what we're experiencing, we think we were lonely during COVID. We've been able to communicate with one another like this, right? There's still a lot of us out there, but what we're experiencing is the incredible loneliness of the last white rhino on the planet who has no one left in their species to communicate with when we're waking up with this incredible sense of panic in the middle of the night, we're picking up on this network of information that's being transmitted through the roots of the trees in the Amazon when the fires and the, and the loggers are coming towards them and destroying the forests. And so we're so deeply connected to life uh, that we're feeling all of the impulses that are coming from life and the distortions and the imbalances that we're creating within this beautiful web of life. And we're thinking that it's something wrong with us because we have become so separated from the rest of life because we have been led to believe that we are something other than all of the other aspects of life uh, in this great illusion of separation. Uh, but what I believe is that this is something that's being righted within us that this is an incredible opportunity for us to really sink into that and to say, okay, you know, I can't think of where this is coming from. So I'm gonna connect to that deep inner wisdom and I'm going to send myself out along that web of life. And I'm going to ask, 
creation, I'm going to ask life itself, where is this pain originating? So that I can begin to write my action in relationship to that, to begin to make real changes in the ways that I'm living in relationship to life. And so that, you know, when I think about separation, I think about all of those things, um, all of that, and all of that comes to mind for me because uh, if we really understood the depth of our connectivity, we could change the reality that we're living in very quickly. When you think about that interconnectivity and what is continuing to keep us separate from feeling into it, from acknowledging it, I'm wondering how much of that you think could be connected into our uh, incredibly strong focus um, and Euro-American culture on the intellect as the primary way of knowing the world, the primary way of deciding what the right action to take is, the primary way of trying to resolve conflicts. I'm wondering if you think getting into right relationship equity, justice, are things that are even possible when we're operating purely through the intellect? You know, I think that um, we're starting, I mean, and when I say we, I mean the, the larger we of the human species, um, that, that there is a process unfolding where human beings are starting to realize the limitations of that way of thinking, that way of knowing. Um, and scientific discovery is actually catching up with what um, people who hold wisdom traditions, um, especially earth-based wisdom traditions in the world have, have known and have been trying to communicate for a very long time, um, which is that there are other ways of knowing. And uh, if we don't access those other ways of knowing, we're going to just continue to repeat the cycles that uh, we're in right now. And so if we, if we want to think about like somebody like um, Leonardo da Vinci, if we want to think about somebody like um, Albert Einstein uh, and, and many others, they talk about having moments of incredible intuition. Um, moments of uh, dawning awareness of the, you know, the, the light bulb moment, uh, not when they were engaging their mind, but when they were in the dream time or they were walking in nature uh, and then it just came upon them. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that, that has been discounted for a very, very long time. Uh, but now people are starting to realize that there is actually a pathway towards knowing that is um, connected to uh, being in our bodies, uh, you know, not, not just in our head, but actually having that knowledge sync within our bodies. Uh, we've also discovered that there's, you know, what we call the three fires. Um, and so there's, you know, there's, there's three by three by three. We tell the story of the three fires. And, I'm not going to get into that now because this is this is a lot. But um, the the nutshell version of that is to think about our the mind center that's in the brain. 
the mind center that's in the heart, the mind center that's in the gut. And so we have our, our cognition, we have our emotion, and we have our intuition. Uh, and when all of those ways of knowing are in alignment and in vibrational harmony, uh, we open to other ways of knowing that are beyond the possibility of our of our our rational mind that are beyond um, the reach that we have when we're only living um, six sensory lives. You know, we have to become multi-sensory beings who are open to uh, these other stores of information that are only available to us when we're in vibrational frequency and vibrational harmony within those three and then the other three and the other three. So it's three by three by three. Um, those three fires are all activated simultaneously. Um, and and we, we bring into uh, fullness our connection to the source from which we come. Um, and also uh, we open up a doorway to all those who have lived in time before us. Uh, but then we realize that time is not linear. So we also open a doorway to all those who are living in the other directions of time. Um, and we have access to stores of knowledge that can catapult us forward um, very quickly in, in relation to the evolution of our consciousness. Um, and so when, when I'm thinking about the limitations of rationality, uh, the brain, Side note, this is where Sherry dropped off the Zoom call and we then reconnected and her sound improved. So that's why you'll notice a little shift in the quality of the audio here. Do you want me to jump right back in? I can. Yeah. Why don't you just go ahead and jump right back in? Okay. So, um, you know, we've had to, we've been forced out of our bodies as a result of the trauma that has resulted from um, all of these forms of capitalism that have been just so destructive to life, including the um, the bodies that we live in, where we've been taught that our bodies are not safe places for us to be. And so we cast ourselves out of our bodies and, and really try to rationalize these irrational and distorted ways in which we've been living. And so when we entered into that whole period of rationalism, uh, we really started seeing a shift from feudalism into, um, the beginning stages of the modern version of capitalism. And so uh, when we when we think about um, how we can now access uh, all of the knowledge that's available to us, these other ways of knowing uh, that correspond to other ways of being in, in the world, we have to recognize the trauma that we experienced in getting cast out of the rest of our, our body. And um, and so when we, um, when we reconnect with our heart space, when we reconnect with the intuitive centers within our gut, um, we begin to recognize them as mind centers within our body. And we start to pay attention to the informing signals because the informing signals, our brain really just responds to signals from our heart and our gut. And it responds to the signals that it's getting from the heart and the gut, and then it determines which way we're going to go and how we're going to behave and how to address uh, those situations based on those instructions. And uh, we have we have dimmed and distorted those instructions uh, as a result of um, the ways that we've been conditioned to believe uh, and to behave through 
through colonization and capitalism. And so it's really about restoring our authentic ways of being in relationship with our own body. It's about restoring our ways of being in authentic relationship with our own intuition, our own spirit. Um, that is going to you know, help us to transcend the binary that is the hallmark of rationality. Uh, so that's, that's what brought us all of the this or that, black or white, because in rationality, we can't expand beyond the narrowness of that thinking. And so when we are, you know, going through these phases right now that we're going through as a species, we look at what's going on on the planet, there's all kinds of opportunities for us to break the binary. And those who are coming forward with life experiences that are helping us to learn that lesson of breaking the binary are our greatest teachers right now on the planet. And so, you know, we're, we're moving ourselves out of this very limited way of thinking into a more expansive way of thinking. And we're having to break all of the bounds and the holds of the, the binary and the limited thinking of rationality and move into a more embodied way of knowing. Uh, and in the process of doing that, we start to recognize that there are other ways of accessing information that are outside of our mind, our, our mind center here in the brain. Um, and to me, that's, that's a really exciting development, right? That we are starting to recognize, you know, um, the science of, of the heart and the science of the gut, right, of our emotions and our intuitions. We're starting to grow up a little bit as spiritual beings and evolve our consciousness a little bit into becoming more um, holistically aware of, of the totality of our being. So it's, it's an exciting time to be alive, even though there's a lot of growing pains that are connected to this time. Well, as you talk about entering this more expansive uh, place, I think this might be a good time to invite you, if you're willing to read one of my favorite parts of Sacred Instructions, which is the prayer for healing and openness. Would you be willing to share that with us? Sure. Let me see. Prayer for healing and openness. My fate is twined with the fate of destiny, held in perpetuity with all life, spiring all the way back to the beginning of time. As I move toward my highest expression, the wisdom of ages is wrapped around me like a cloak. It moves with me, shifting to match my own unique rhythm, and then integrating that rhythm into the movement of creation. Let that cloak be a comfort to me in times of trial. Allow me to open myself to this wisdom and let it soften my defenses against it, knowing that any pain that I feel during the process is caused by denying the wise enticement of my own true heart. I seek to become a willing vessel and to open my heart completely to those whom fate has drawn toward me. Allow me to see them not through the obscured vision of my own wounding or the defensive shelter created by theirs, but with the clarity of vision that can reveal their soul to me. Give me strength to remain seated in this pursuit beyond the levels of my own discomfort and fear, so that I may become the boundless being that you have created me to be, capable of embracing all life and capable of giving and receiving all of the love that the divine spirit holds for me. 
Kachee Wiliwin and it ends with Batilda and Dilda Bamuk. My heart thanks you for all of my relatives. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you. One of the lines in that prayer that I'm so intrigued by is, allow me to open myself to this wisdom and let it soften my defenses against it. Could you say more about the defenses that impede us from receiving the wisdom that we need? Well, I mean, what, what I'm talking about there is that that scar tissue that we all have from the wounds that we carry. And uh, one of the things that I think it's really important to know is that um, we are all wounded. And so if you look at um, the mirror neurons of people who are having a conversation and there's a lot of there's a lot of emotion and people are really engaged with the story, they're all firing in exactly the same way. And so it doesn't matter if you're the perpetrator of violence, if you're the recipient of violence, or you're the witness to violence. It registers within our bodies and our spirits in the same way. And so the wounding that you see within the energy field and the spirit of the person uh, who is, um, you know, the victim or the perpetrator or the witness, it looks exactly the same. And how we process that wound uh, and develop scar tissue around it, you know, what I was just talking about before that we've had to, we've had to pop out of our bodies because the pain of the emotion and the intuition of realizing how wrong those behaviors are in relation to the truth of our spirit, there's this protective barrier that's created in that. And so when I'm trying to access this deep wisdom that's available to me, when I'm trying to connect with the heart-based knowing or the intuitive guidance that exists within my being, that connects me to the source of all life and all knowing throughout all stages and directions of time, I have to move beyond the protective barriers that I've created to the distortions of the wounding that has occurred. And so recognizing that those barriers exist, there's actually, you know, it's the curse and the blessing side by side, right? Um, the flip side of the coin where when we, when we come face to face with our deepest wounds is when we have the greatest opportunity to touch the divine, because the more profound the pain, the more incredible and immense the, the, the light on the other side of it, right? The blessing, the love. And so, um, you know, for me, um, when, we're, when we're thinking about this cloak and we're thinking about the barriers, we're thinking about... Um, all of the things that um, both comfort us and disturb us about those moments of deep, deep contact with um, our own pain and suffering. It's in that, that tiny spot in between, right? We call this Medewin. Uh, and this is, this is something that I'm going to talk about in the new, in the follow-up to sacred instructions that my, um, my friend, the Grand Chief of the Wollastuk, uh, Ron Trumbly, talks about this is like where uh, that word medeolin, um it refers to the space between the skin and the and the wood on the drum. 
And so when we're sitting in that space with our deepest pain, right, we're sitting in that space in between, that's where all of all of the juicy bits occur is in that space. And so if there was no space in between the skin and the wood on the drum, there would never be any sound. Uh, it's it's the coming together of those spaces in between, right? And that's that's the wisdom uh, within our traditions of of understanding those who stood in the space in between. You know what people now call non-binary is that uh, there there has to be the space in between in order for there to be uh, you know the distinction between the two parts that come together to make something new. Uh, the skin itself doesn't make the sound. The the wood doesn't make the sound. It's the coming together of the two that creates this new thing. And so when we're standing there with our barrier, right, who we think we are here, that protective space here, uh, you know, what exists between us and that space, uh, when we come together and we make that contact is where something new can emerge, uh, that something new that emerges is uh, an expression of us in greater fullness because we're integrating what that is into our being and then having a whole new expression of that uh, come forward. And to me, that um, the power and the beauty and the pain and the uh, you know exuberance and exhilaration of those moments, which I used to run from, I now welcome because there's such incredible opportunity for us there in that space. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I mean, I could go on this, uh, I could go on and on about this, but in the interest of time, I won't, but, um, you know, that's, that's what I think about when I'm thinking about, um, that space that, that, that we're talking about here and that, that um, that barrier is really us coming face to face with the scar tissue and just smoothing that skin to see what exists underneath. You know what exists between us and and the the skin of our being that we've covered up because it's been so deeply wounded. Mm-hmm. A little ways back, you mentioned that we're kind of going through these growing pains as we, you know, step into being more spiritual beings. And in sacred instructions, you use the phrase spiritual maturity. And it's a phrase I've really been sitting with and reflecting on since of feeling into what spiritual maturity looks like for me. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit about spiritual maturity and what it looks like to step into it, which I feel like maybe asking you to sort of do the continuation of, of what you were just talking about a little bit, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, um, a spiritual maturity is really uh, stepping outside of our childlike dependence, that we have been really conditioned by um, our our ways of being for the last two millennia and then some um, to become more and more and more dependent on a ruling class. We've been taught to be more and more dependent on some other, right? And so for me... Um, this whole concept of spiritual maturity is really 
letting go of that um, childlike dependence, letting go of this notion that someone else is going to come along and solve our problems, letting go of this idea that um, someone someone else is going to um, come along and forgive our sins that someone's going to come along and give us a new life that's better than the life we have now as a reward for our suffering, right? And our ambivalence and our complacency with the suffering of others. That if we can just, you know, uh, hold a line here, then we'll be rewarded with something greater later on. That, that, um, that's kind of magical thinking in, in my opinion, that separates us from the life that we're living right now. It, it takes away our agency and our autonomy in this moment to show up and to be responsible for the creation of the reality that we are currently inhabiting. And so spiritual maturity is about taking responsibility for the lives that we're living now. It's acting in ways that is fully informed of the true power of our being, truly informed of the responsibilities that we carry. Um, as co-creators of of this universe that we're all inhabiting, and so when we when we think about um, about these concepts of of co-creation, when we think about uh, for me uh, as Chkwabanakiek as Benawapskewi, Skijinwiapid, you know, when I think about myself in terms of who I know I am in relation to my worldview, my cosmology, my um, ways of knowing and being in the world. Um, it's really about understanding my, um, my interconnectedness, my responsibility towards, towards all other life, um, and this inter, intertwining of both rights and responsibilities. And so, you know, we're, we're very uh, quick to claim our reward and we're very quick to claim our rights. Um, what we have failed to do is to claim our responsibilities. And we fail to understand that our responsibilities are the foundation that all of our rights stand upon. And so we can't claim anything for ourselves, whether it's a reward or a right, without ensuring that that exists for all others. And that happens through collective action. Uh, which is a whole lot of individuals choosing to bring their powers of co-creation into action um, collectively to create a world that's actually a reflection of the values that we hold um, and not some vacuous void um, where, where nobody knows what holds meaning anymore, uh, which is the danger that we're living in right now. As we try to integrate all of the the messages that this pandemic has brought us and all that it's revealed or highlighted about the healing that we need to undertake. What's one question that you would ask listeners to think about as they contemplate how to begin again in a new way? I was uh, speaking one time in this, in this uh, environmental conference with Francis Moore Lupe and she put this slide up that said, um, why are we together choosing a world that we as individuals would never choose? And so 
ever since that time, I've, I've wondered, you know, if everyone really knew, if everyone was fully aware uh, that they are actively co-creating the reality that we're living in, how would we choose to behave right now? Like, what thoughts would we breathe life into in this moment? What actions would we engage to build the world that we um, would most like to inhabit? You know, what words would we choose to shape the relationships that we most want to have? Um, And so essentially, you know, it becomes, you know, who would we be in that world? Not what would we be, but who would we be and who would we choose to show up as in each moment. And so my question to listeners is this, um, what are the thoughts, words, and actions that you can begin uh, to breathe life into right now to get us closer to the reality that is most aligned with the world that you want to inhabit as an individual? I absolutely love Sherry's final question. It reinforces that idea that stepping into spiritual maturity means taking full responsibility for our thoughts, our words, and our actions, all of the vibrations that we put out into the world. I've been sitting with her question ever since this interview, really letting it reverberate through me, and I hope that you will as well. As I said at the top of this podcast, this is the final interview of this season of Hurry Slowly. And it feels like a perfect finish to me. As you listen to this, I'll be in the midst of a much-needed sabbatical to rest, recalibrate, and start to get a handle on what's next for me. I'm not sure what the timing will be, but when I emerge, I'll record a final wrap-up for this season. So stay tuned for that. I have this sense of big new things coming in and... I'm really excited to share more with you once I have a little bit more clarity on what the future holds. In the meantime, if you'd like to stay in the loop about my future projects and the latest episodes of this podcast, you can sign up for my newsletter at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. And if you found some sparks of insight through this episode and would like to support the podcast, you can visit hurryslowly.co slash donations and make a contribution. Or you can leave us a review on iTunes. This podcast is produced by Matt Susich with additional audio assistance from Devin Craig Johnson, who also composed our lovely theme song. As always, thank you for listening, and remember to hurry slowly. <laughs>